Hi, I'm Peter Anthony. And I'm Steve Angel. You're listening to Men With Spirit. Join us as we explore what it means to be a modern man and to live a spirited life. G'day and welcome to episode 39 of Men With Spirit at Radio Karam. If you're new to the show, our aim is to encourage men to get out of their heads and more into their hearts, to be more authentically connected with themselves and with others, and integral to this is to live your life according to your values. My name's Peter Anthony and I'm here with my co-host Steve Angel. G'day Steve, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great, Peter. Thank you. And quite optimistic for today's show. I was going to ask you about that. But what have you you been up to since we last were on air? Anything exciting? Well, um, I have taken on a project at home to um, landscape our little front yard, something I've never done before. But I uh, set an intention earlier this year that I would revamp some plain grass and turn it into something a bit more lovely to look out from the window. Good on you. So, so in I'm addition to, to uh, Bob the Builder, we're now Bob the Gardener or <laughs> Jim's Gardening or I something. <laughs> good on you. I know. But I've got some wonderful friends um, that are really giving me a lot of good advice. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Good on you. And um, taking a leaf out of our guest's book today, mm. what's the best thing that's happened to you over the last day or so? So much. I had a wonderful men's group yesterday. We really did. It was a small group, but in that small group, we had just a power-packed conversation, which I was really grateful for. It was, it was unexpected, and um, really grateful that we had the opportunity to do that. I don't think we would have had a discussion as open as frank as we did yesterday because we were quite, quite open. When normally, we're, as facilitators, we're quite mm. we taken a seat back, a uh, back seat, so in order to allow the members to speak and to share. So that was it was good i enjoyed that a lot good. and what about you what's been well, the best thing that's happened to you well following on the same thing i was going to say uh, the men's group last night and two things in particular and i can thank uh, our guest victor who we'll introduce in a sec um for both experiences one was um uh the um meditation that we had which was the, uh, the gratitude meditation which you'd share with us compassion which, i think it compassion, was compassion yes. yeah and uh steve uh led that and that was a really beautiful meditation so that was great and then um uh the, the theme of the night or the discussion was around optimism surprise surprise and we um uh i chose out of this amazing uh, song list or playlist that victor's put together just a song at random and it happened to be um, Elvis Presley is If I Can Dream and we played that particular song with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and it turned out that one of the guys was um, really, really touched by it and it happened to be the song that he'd chosen for his um, funeral mm. and, and it was very significant. We had this amazing discussion around the song and the lyrics and the meaning and what it, what it made us feel. So both of those things last night were, um, were really good. Um, Personally, I'm feeling um, excited and a little anxious at the moment because I'm making a few personal changes in my life, which are um, quite exciting. Been down in Gippsland, doing a bit of, bit of a few days down there, which was great. I always really enjoy that. So it's, um, yeah, good to be back on air with you and uh, very excited about our guests today. 
So the, um, the topic for today's show, Steve, is optimism as an antidote to negativity. Mm-hmm. And our guest to explore this subject is self-described um, radical optimist, Victor Purden. Welcome, Victor. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Steve. What a beautiful studio you've got here, and we're all smiling and laughing, so it's a great way to start. Yeah, we're very fortunate to be able to use the Radio Caron facilities here, aren't we? Mm, um, just by way of introduction, Victor, um, these days you're, you describe yourself as the Chief Optimism Officer at the Centre for Optimism here in Melbourne. And shortly we'll find out how you came to create this role, but some of the notable roles you've previously held included being a Liberal politician in the Victorian State Parliament and a minister at one stage. And uh, you're in politics for almost two decades. You've worked as a barrister and you've been the Victorian government's commissioner to the Americas. Uh, You grew up as a child of a widow, grandchild of men and women who were persecuted and tortured by the Soviets in Latvia and Lithuania. And despite all of this, you would describe yourself um, as an optimist and you'd come from four generations of radically hopeful people. That barely touches the surface of your background, Victor. I was just thinking about uh, how long I've known you, and it must be at least two decades, and I think when you were back in the politics... And then later on, we came, uh, our paths crossed, uh, crossed when we were exploring spiritual development and personal development topic, uh, themes and uh, got to know each other uh, there as well. So it's great to have you here. Do you want to explain a little bit about your early life and background and perhaps how you came to become such an optimistic person? Well, well I, it, it could be an hour-long discussion, so I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. My, my parents came here as refugees in 1950. Um, I was born in, in 1958. Um, grew up as, as a child in East Coburg, uh, near the Merrick Creek, and I'm now on the board of Yarra Valley Water, so only now do I understand the quality of the water I used to swim and wade in and catch oh, fish in. And um, then my father died when I was pretty young, so mum was a you know refugee mother, widow um yeah but what was wonderful for us uh, was that it was the australian people mm-hmm. our neighbors who stepped up to support you know the the very australian people very generous and you know if, if i got home before mum got back from you know her three jobs you know i could go next door the the people across the road mm-hmm. would bring mm-hmm. us flowers and you know help with the gardening and the maintenance and so you know, we experienced, you know, the absolute best of Australia, you know, in our need. And, you know, mum, as I said, worked three jobs, sent us both my sister and myself through the Catholic school system, mm-hmm. uh, St. Bernard's Primary School in East Coburg and Christian Brothers in Pasco Vale. And St. Bernard's. Uh, the lovely memories, you know, just, um, you know, the, the, the Mercy Sisters and, you know, the women who'd come from Ireland and all sorts of places to serve. I was in the sim- I was just up the road at St Ambrose in Brunswick and went to St Joe's North Melbourne and that sort of thing. So know the area very very well. Well, I went to the junior school at St Joe's, but I never went to the senior school because right. um, we moved to Doncaster in my late teens, and then I finished off at Whitefriars, which yep, again yep. was a splendid school. In those days, um, you know, I was one of those kids who toyed between medicine and law and. 
Um, I was very much attracted to politics and making a difference. In those days, the Soviet Union still existed. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very passionate about human rights. I remain passionate about human rights. And this desire to free people up. You know, my grandfather had been tortured to death by the Soviets, my grandmother to the gulag for 12 years. She survived a camp in which, as I understand, hundreds of thousands of people died. She never talked to me about that experience. It must have just been too difficult. Um, so, you know, we'd come out of that. Um, and so for me, human freedom, helping to destroy communism was a big thing. So I became a liberal. I understood what liberalism is. I was inspired by two sort of bits of writing. Um, one was um, a guy called Hobhouse who wrote a pamphlet in 1911. And, and it fits the theme of this broadcast because he said liberalism is the liberation of living spiritual energy mm. you know the living liberation of spiritual energy and, and so for me that that really captured me and then um, you know the Menzies idea you know where he said we called the party liberal not conservative because we were determined to be progressive and not reactionary and believing in the individual, their rights and their enterprise. And again, you know, it's progressive, it's it's not reactionary. So, you know, I did law school, I did okay in law school. Um, I was a, played politics, I was president of the Young Liberals and I was elected to parliament at the age of 28 and um, 18 years rushed by. It was such good fun and you were a part yeah, of yeah, it, yeah. you know. We created Multimedia Victoria, we had um, you know, I chaired the country's first data privacy committee. You know, yeah, it's so, yeah. um, you know, contemporary today. In those days, it was sort of revolutionary. You pushed through a number of initiatives uh, that were significant globally, you know, ahead of the ahead of the game. And I think uh, the multimedia Victoria thing was extraordinary. And I think you actually created, what, the first website for a, a politician in Australia, if I recall correctly. I, I did, and it was that oh, terrible old programming language you had to use. And uh, But I was the fifth in the world. I just followed Teddy Kennedy, who had a lot of resources. He yeah, uh, didn't build his own. And I still remember telling my colleagues, oh, this is the way you're going to communicate with your constituents in the future. And they all laughed at me. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, Kenneth, you know, when anyone came, you know, who was sort of some sort of webhead to town, he'd say, oh, go and talk to Victor, he'll understand you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's true. That, that was you were the go-to man on that. But uh, you know, and full credit to what you achieved was great. So, so the evolution then was about 2005, 2006. I could see politics becoming more and more negative. Mm. And and you know, I grew up in a time. I, you know, we were mentored by Dick Hamer and others. So you would shout at each other mm. um, in the chamber. You, know, you might say awful things in a press conference and then you go into the coffee room or the bar and talk to the person you've just been arguing with mm. over tea or coffee about family. So 2006, I'd had enough, so I retired, which is unusual in politics. Normally, you have to be defeated. Mm. And um, a couple of years went by, sort of a you know, mixture of law and tech, and then out of the blue, John Brumby approached me. Um, and asked whether I'd be interested in being Commissioner of the Americas. And John and I had spat at each other across the table, you know, when men shouted at each other. And he said, look, you know, I need a big personality to go there. Um, would you consider it? You know, and I took up a day to think about it and then did it. And it was the most incredible experience, you know, selling the vision of investment in Australia, uh, supporting uh, Victorian exporters, right from North to South America. And everywhere I went, there was this stereotype of Aussies. 
as relentless optimists mm-hmm. and, and made my work easy. You know, we, we had one project where we had to visit 100 corporations of a particular type at CEO and chairman level. We were given two years to do it. We did it in nine months. Every time we said it was the Australian story, we wanted to talk about the doors opened. And the mm-hmm. chairman of Caterpillar said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Nothing is in, you know, nothing impossible. And then um, after that, I worked for Joe Hockey and then Tony Abbott on the G20 presidency. I remember when you did that. Yeah, and at that super elite level of presidents, prime ministers, <clears throat> finance ministers, central bank governors, it was the same stereotype. And um, when I came back to Melbourne after that 2015, I was struck by the negativity. The, the negativity of language, the, the negativity towards leadership. Now, political leadership is mocked in every country. I mean, the, the Russians, I'm sure there's a, you know, 25 jokes about Putin that do the rounds. And in China, there's probably 50 jokes about, mm-hmm. you know, Chairman yeah, Xi. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, here we all mock our leaders of, of both sides. I picked up this sort of great negativity around leadership, and which I've subsequently discovered wasn't just about leadership. It's also um, in the spirit, you know, the, exactly what you're talking about. And the number of Australians on antidepressants and anti-anxiety mm. drugs mm. has doubled since 2012. Mm-hmm. And it's a linear progression. It's not as if COVID suddenly set off a massive anxiety and depression. So something is happening in the Australian soul Something is happening in the language that, is, that is leading to a great negativity. And do you think the uh, the politicians, our so-called political leaders, have got a role in in what's in this increased negativity and fear in the Australian society? Do you think they've played a significant role in bringing that about? I think they are the characters in a Punch and Judy show. I think that the greater force is global news media mm-hmm. uh, and global media. So Stephen Pinker, who's the head of psychology mm-hmm. at Harvard, um, wrote a book on this. And uh, Rosling, a Swedish doctor, wrote another book on factfulness, called Factfulness. And, you know, I mean, you're a bit younger than me, but when I was, you know, in my teens, the news was roughly 50-50 good-bad. Right? You, you had a balance because the TV crews had to use video. You couldn't buy content from around the world. Now they can buy content for almost nothing around the world. You know, we get the headline, someone got shot in a you know, KFC in Louisiana or the like. And so Pinker says the news is now roughly 95% bad. And so people are completely misguided in their view of the state of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is this increasing negativity um, because of all that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when you noticed that difference, did it surprise you, considering that you were being told by all these Americans and, and you know, politicians, you know, how optimistic Australians are? Was it a bit of a shock when you came back and went, hold on, are we as optimistic as... I've been told we are. Yeah, and for me, you know, first you sort of think, have I changed? You know, Mm. living in San Francisco with flowers in what's left of of the rest (laughs) of my hair. Um, And then, of course, I lived globally, you know, in this super elite environment. And so was it me that had changed or was it Australian society that was changed? And so rather than, you know, just condemn, you know, this negativity, we created a project called the Australian Leadership Project. And we interviewed 2,500 people 
from Bill George at Harvard to the academics at INSEAD to people on the factory floor in Australia. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that two-year project, we concluded that in global terms, Australian leadership was pretty good and, and characterised by three features. And, and your listeners, I think, will resonate with this. First, egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk to the cleaner with the same respect we, we speak to the chairman, and that's very unusual in global terms. Um, secondly, self-effacing humour. You know, mm-hmm. we've been laughing at ourselves. You know, the, the good Australian leader tells jokes against themselves rather than mocking someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of cheap American or you know, other countries mocking humour is not the Australian way. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing, I remember the Russian finance minister said to me, yeah, I never die wondering what you'll think. Um, no bullshit plain speaking. Mm-hmm. And if those are the three characters of Australian leadership, all of you, well, I think we're running it probably at 100% in this room. Um, I reckon your listeners will be thinking, yeah, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the people around me. So at the end of the project, I was still left confused mm. as to the negativity that I was picking up. And I was lucky enough in 2017 to be on the final panel of the Global Integrity Summit. And it was three days of misery. You know, you would think it was the end of political freedom, the end of press freedom. And I changed my speech to the case for optimism. Mm -hmm. And it just resonated across the room. You know, that, you know, let's, we can't paralyze ourselves with pessimism. We need action. And that was my eureka moment. Mm -hmm. The revelation was it was not the problem of leadership, it's the fog of pessimism. And so since that day, really, you know, the question became crystallized, what makes you optimistic? Not what makes me optimistic, mm-hmm. not what makes Bill Gates or Steven Pinker or Anthony Albanese optimistic. Mm-hmm. We focus on what makes the person optimistic. Is mm-hmm. it them? Are they a natural optimist? You know, were they born that way? Is it mindset? Mm-hmm. Is it life experience? Most people become more optimistic as they get older. Um, is it a faith in God? Is it a faith in man? Mm-hmm. Is it a faith in science? Is it a belief in historical progression? Mm-hmm. And for your p- program and your listeners, you might be interested, as of this month, I've started adding an additional question, which is what makes you feel optimistic? So, and we did, you know, you opened the program, uh, Peter, with um, a question of, of, you know, the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually ran a fabulous series during lockdown called "The Optimist Heart." Mm-hmm. Um, and we had you know Chilean composers and all sorts of interesting people. Uh, and so for me, you know, what we're really searching for um, is what makes the individual optimistic. And so we've asked women in India, we've asked the president of Taiwan, you know, the prime minister of Papua New Guinea. Now that's a tough job. <laughs> He says, you can only do this job if you're an optimist. But we've now got 20,000 well-thought-through statements of what makes people optimistic. And save for the 1% that give a one-word answer, you know, like family or God, almost all of them are completely unique. So there's no real pattern other than... There's patterns. So, for instance, um, I door knocked a town in West Wimmera. And, you know, where people are typically farmers or retired farmers or small business people, their natural optimism was off the Richter scale. But I did a retreat for nurses and midwives of one of the big private hospitals here. 
Um, and there wasn't much natural optimism. It was almost all mindset and life experience. Mm. You know, the nurse is going to do her best. The midwife is going to do her best. Um, and there are many, many happy stories uh, of the work they do. But they know there's a percentage probability that the person will die. Well, in fact, mm. you know, we will all die. Um, and so very interesting to work with nurses and midwives and at the other end, farmers, you know, who have to sow their crops. I mean, these days they've got a lot more data than their grandparents did. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, is it going to rain? You know, am I going to have a storm? Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that a farmer has to do. So there are patterns and differences, um, but more related to the community, more related to the enterprise. What about spirituality? Is that a, a common theme that uh, is there, a sense in uh, God? or Yeah, more or? more in other countries. Okay. Australia is not a deeply spiritual country. Um, you know, somehow in the education system it's almost disappeared. Mm. Um, you know, I was very pleased my son um, went to an Anglican school where they still went to Mass once a week and, you know, they, they respected the singing and like, but... A lot of schools, you know, they, they don't even know how to teach it. Mm. Um, so people, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not going to stereotype of Australians, but, you know, there are more people that go to Chadston than go to church. Mm-hmm. But equating going to church or identifying with a religion doesn't necessarily mean you're not spiritual. I think um, you tell the story about your, uh, your mother and her practice of yoga. And, and so there's a lot of other ways people are uh, expressing a connection with whatever, but they recognise there's something beyond just themselves and there's a sense of spirituality and being connected and it's not necessarily tied up with an organised religion as such. No, no, you're quite right. But me personally, I like the rituals of religion. You know, I'm going, you know, Ramadan is starting tomorrow, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I'm going to several iftar dinners. I'm going to the first iftar dinner in in a synagogue, so for me, setting aside that time for ritual or song, I think is useful. But like you, you know, I meditate every morning. Um, you know, I share meditations when I'm doing speeches. Um, you know, I like um, University of California, Berkeley has, has recently published a, a piece of research on just looking up at the sky. You know, that, that if you look up at the sky, you feel better. And, and that sense of connectedness to the stars and so on. Why do you meditate? Well, it's good for me. So originally, probably my mother was a strong influence on that. And then as I grew older and, and understood it better, um, I had a connection with the Brahma Kumaris, which mm-hmm. is a women-led Hindu sect in India. Um, more recently, there's an Anglican bishop, Philip Huggins, who... Um, does Christian meditation. So I, I know it's good for my health. Um, it's good for my optimism. And as a man, I prefer, as we did before we started this, silent meditation. Mm-hmm. Just focusing my breath. I mean, you know, one of the differences between men and women, although we'll probably get 400 phone calls into the studio, but women prefer narrated meditations. I think men prefer silent meditations. It's a, a difference. Although... The compassion meditation, which I've now done at several major conferences, you know, where you um, start with compassion for someone you love, you then move to compassion for someone you don't know, you move to compassion to someone you don't like. 
and then compassion towards yourself you know may i be happy may i be healthy may i be loved that's the one that brings men to tears mm-hmm. they can actually it's easy to send you know those blessings may i be happy may i be healthy may i be loved or may you be loved um to someone you love and even someone you hate Mm. But then you've got to turn it back on yourself. So I love meditation, um, and and you know, oftentimes you know, I mean, the, the Tibetans, of course, meditate walking. Mm. You know, they they either keep their eyes open or sometimes they close. The other day, I went for my morning walk. There was this sea breeze, and I have this eucalyptus forest outside the front of my house, and this aroma, this heady aroma of sea air. Um, eucalyptus and then I, I grow roses at home so I get this wafting of these very fragrant roses as well and gosh that's up God it sets you up for the day mm. but as you say I mean you don't don't need to be a god bothery you don't need to to be on your knees but on the other hand I think there's 50,000 years of development of the rituals that you see in Catholicism Judaism Islam Hinduism you know, the, the, the smell of incense. Um, my favourite, favourite music is a Gregorian mass. Um, it's a piece by Jan Garbarek um, with the Hilliard Singers, and it's his 13th century sung mass, and he plays a jazz saxophone into it. <laughs> and I, I've played that, you know, in, in a deep valley, you know, it sort of bounced off the rocks. And so, you know, you go back, so, so you know, the, if you look at, at, you know, sort of, particularly in Christian development, you know, 2,000 years of the best music, the best art, the best architecture um, went into religion. Um, we, we shouldn't waste it. Yeah, and, though, and music can really uplift you. Uh, absolutely agree with that. And ritual, the power of ritual over the years, I have certainly uh, would certainly agree with you on that. What I've really enjoyed about your journey, Victor, is you've looked at different um, uh, beliefs, religions, practices, that sort of thing, and, and what works for you. And you've come to a, um, a set of practices and beliefs that work for you, and meditation forms a key part of it. And I think that's really good that, that there are, I'm finding a lot of people out there that, that are looking for things, and what's right for one person may not be right for another person. So it's whatever works for you, but that yearning for connectedness and greater meaning and uh, I think is um, fairly common these days and, and and if people can't find that they, they turn to the antidepressants and all these other things we we're talking about before yeah and and you see it um, particularly um, the pharmaceutical companies um, doctors pushing pills at women in midlife yeah. where, where where you know the, the the natural cycles you know that they're experiencing are normal Mm-hmm. Um, or in the case of grief, we've had a big project on grief and optimism. Mm-hmm. So you know, grief is normal. You know, your parents are likely to die before you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, friends, some friends will die before you. This is natural. And instead of recommending that you spend time with friends, you know, that you, you drink coffee and tea together or alcohol together and, you know, you have that sense of connectedness, there's a magic pill. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And and so, you know, particularly coming out of COVID, the more we can knock on the doors of next door name. Now that I was door knocking, um, not far from here actually, in Black Rock, just yeah. asking people uh, what makes you optimistic. 
And I came across two men, I think they're probably in their 70s, and they were cutting each other's lawn together. Mm. Uh, a bit like you, Steve. <laughs> it was sort of like a men's collective to do their two gardens. And you could just see. And I said, what makes you optimistic? And they said, oh, living in this Black Rock community, it was clear that this group of neighbours had created a community where men of 70 felt mm. companionship and you know, one of the wives came out and it was just joyful and happy and it's people connection, not not medication. Yep. Although when you say that, the chances are one in five of our listeners are on a medication. I was talking about this the other day just in the gym. And um, you know, the woman said, yeah, look, I'm on these pills and I can't see a way to get off them. Mm. And one of the problems is that the AMA does not have a protocol for taking people off antidepressants. I'd also like to add that I think it's not just women. I'm seeing it more and more with the clients that I have that men in middle age also experiencing andropause are also feeling this kind of sense of feeling lost um, and the prescription to antidepressants is growing and growing and again this feeling of like this feels better than what I was feeling before. But like you said, you know, without that kind of uh, initiative by someone like myself to say, okay, let's work on uh, getting you off these. We need a program off these. It's not. There's a feeling of being stuck. And that's that's not a, not a great thing. In the second part of the show, we're going to go into in more detail about uh, optimism and how it's a, a, um, uh, an antidote to... Um, <laughs> to um, uh, just picking up and touching the disc and the noise that comes through thank you Victor um, but how it's an antidote to uh, all the negativity out there so before we do that though we, we uh, as regular listeners would know that we ask our guests to come up with some music and not, uh, Victor's not only come up with some music he's given us a huge playlist of music to do with optimism so thank you very much for that and we will be sharing it um, but one of the songs you've got on your list there, Victor, is a song called Optimistic. Um, would you like to explain why you've chosen that and just a little bit of a background, why that means something to you? It's a very evocative piece of music. It's um, August Green, which is a, a black super group mm -hmm. um, with Common and Brandy, so big stars. And, and the song is just beautiful. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit like Mandela in some senses who said, I'm an optimist. I don't know whether it's nature or nurture. I just know it's it's looking up towards the sun and putting one foot in front of the other. And those of you who want to do the video, watch the video. Um, if you Google August Green optimistic, the video has all these heroes of the civil rights movement, mm. um, and it's just very evocative. So I love both the music. And in these days, oftentimes, the visual is just as important. So I'd commend people to listen to the music and listen to the words, sing along. Um, I often use it when I come on stage to do a major speech, but also go to the video. It will lift you. Okay. And we'll include a link to that video as well. Thank you for that. Let's hear Optimistic. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. 
Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Men with Spirit on Radio Karen with me, Steve Angel, and my co-host, Peter Anthony. And today our guest is Victor Purton, and we're discussing optimism as an antidote to negativity. Now, before the break, we heard a little bit about um, Victor's journey to this point. But I guess the question I want to ask you now is, what do you mean by optimism? Um, my favourite definition of optimism is actually 700 years old. Um, written by Mother Julian of Norwich, who lived through the Black Plague. I mean, very reflective Mm. of where we are now. And she got sick, prayed to God, said, if I recover, I will devote myself to Mm. God. Recovered, and then lived in a little cell at Norwich Cathedral. And her book, The Revelations, is one of the oldest surviving books in English written by a woman. And in it, there's a phrase, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Mm Mm-hmm. That has been reflected in poetry. Queen Elizabeth in her radio broadcast at the age of 14 used part of that line. And it's this notion that you might be, dare I say it, might be in the shit, Mm -hmm. but things are going to be okay. And had she lived 700 years, she could have written the Harvard Medical School definition of optimism, which is a belief that, (coughs) excuse me, good things will happen mm-hmm. and that things will work out in the end. Mm-hmm. So a belief that good things will happen and that things will work out in the end. And I'm sure some of your listeners are old enough to remember John Lennon. Mm-hmm. John Lennon is it famously added to that, and if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. So it's forward-looking, but it doesn't say, look, nah, nah, everything's great. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that positive thinking, there's a silver lining in every dark cloud. You know, I mean, Mother Julian lived through the Black Plague. 25% Mm -hmm. of the European population died. Who knows how many died elsewhere? And, you know, we're in the middle. You know, Zelensky's a great example. You know, um, Fareed Zakaria on CNN interviewed Zelensky and said, how do you remain optimistic in the face of such evil? And Zelensky said, it's because I believe in people, Mm -hmm. my people and the people of the world who are supporting us. So optimism is very much this forward thinking. It's it's for the tough times, not for the easy times. You know, the famous book about the Holocaust, your man's search for meaning. Victor Frankl, yes. You know, tragic optimism, as he called it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this belief that you could go. John McCain, you know, who'd had every limb broken um, in a Vietnamese prison camp, was the first senior American politician to go back to Vietnam to build the relationship. So um, oftentimes, you know, optimism is for the tough, optimism is for the tough times. And the more infectiously optimistic we can be, the better. I was lucky enough to be in an audience with the Dalai Lama last year, relatively small group of us. And he said for teenagers, you know, and we're talking about teenage boys today, we're talking about men. He said the most important thing we can do for our teenagers is foster their optimism. Mm. But you can't tell them to be optimistic. You must model optimism. That's interesting because I was going to ask you, how do you teach someone optimism? So it's, it's what you're saying is it's through your own actions, your own behavior, the way that you express life or describe life and the the situations that come to you and the and questions you ask so one of our the most choices su- you make yeah, one of our most successful interventions which you've referred to earlier is in one of the things about australian language now is this negativity in the greeting so g'day how are you something like two-thirds of australians answer not bad or not too bad 
where does it take you? Mm-hmm. Nowhere, really. Nowhere. Just it, it's it's a wasted greeting. It comes from the the instinctive reptile brain. You know, they don't care about your question. You don't care about their answer. So it, we did it in prison. We've done it in in medical schools. Get rid of the question, "How are you?" and replace it with, "What's been the best thing in your day?" Mm-hmm. Now, at half the people will look at you and give you a little answer straight away. Oh, you know, I saw the sunrise or I had a great meeting or I had a woman the other day in a, in a event that I ran for a local council. She said, my autistic son was calm on the way to school today. Mm. Right. For her, that was you could just see the smile. Everyone was brought to a tear yeah. when she said that because we understood how important that was to her. Some people will stare at you and say, oh, I can't think of anything. Or in the supermarket, they'll say, oh, God, the end of my shift. And you'll say, I'll say, well, the end of your shift hasn't come yet. You know, did you have a nice <laughs> customer? And, of course, they'll banter back and say, oh, well, you're the best thing so far. And then some people might say, absolutely nothing. And particularly for men of spirit like you, you then know you've got permission to say mm. something wrong. Mm-hmm. I have a, um, a relative of mine who runs a group called Saving Brothers, and they have a Philip Robinson, and they have a greeting in which to elicit um, more from a from a bloke than rather than just a, I'm doing well, and that is how's your day going out of five automatically forces them to choose a number and in that number then gives you the opportunity to go, well, what makes it a two? Or what makes it a three? What makes it a whatever? So, yeah. storytelling, you know, um, there's a a new study out of the University of California, Berkeley, which talks about awe. And, you know, we think of awe as being seeing the northern lights or a lightning storm or, you know, plunging into a surf beach. They say for most people they interviewed, it was the stories of people. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can tell stories, or one of my board members is John Hagel, who ran the Deloitte Centre for the Edge. He talks about narrative, you know, because a story has a beginning, a middle and an end, and we should all be good storytellers, but the narrative is more important. Where am I taking my life, you know? And I can be in great difficulty now. And one of the, the other practices we do that's, that's very beneficial is called My Best Self. And we don't have time to do it today, but I do it online. People are welcome to join me at the beginning of every quarter. And what you do is you take either an alcoholic drink or coffee or tea and spend five minutes meditating on you in five years' time. You know, assuming that your health will be okay, the family will be okay, society will be okay. And just imagine yourself, and then you spend five to ten minutes journaling about a day. You know, you might be on holidays in mm-hmm. Peru, or you might be in a new job, or you might be in a radio studio, and just writing about breakfast, lunch, who I'm with, and what I did. The interesting thing is, it will, I, mean, I don't believe in that sort of the gift, the power of manifestation, although a lot of people do. But if you write about it, the chances are you will make that better future come true. And Vienna Medical School, for instance, says that is the best practice to lift your spirit and to lift your optimism. It, that kind of leads to the question I wanted to ask you. Um, we're all talking about optimism. So you're talking to somebody or someone is listening right now who doesn't feel optimistic at all. In fact, let's just say they're feeling quite depressed. They're feeling quite low. Life's not going well for whatever reason it may be, their fault or other people around them. It, it doesn't really matter. 
how how does what you're teaching f- work for them? How does it fit for them? Where where does what you teach help them rise from that rut that they're in that they believe is you know the, their life? We'll call it pessimistic, or but just call it depressed at the moment. How how do you help someone like that? What do sure. you say to someone like that? I mean, there's some people you can't help, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, they'll just stare at me and say I'm pessimistic. Although oftentimes people will do that in humour, but but there are people who do need medication, you know, for clinical depression and the like. And you know, it, it's a difficult pathway for them. But for most people, it, it is a choice, and and is a choice that starts with smiling at people mm-hmm. so you know i don't want to sound trivial but i was mc at a cyber security conference and it was the first time any of these people had ever been asked what makes them optimistic because you sell cyber security through fear mm-hmm. and one of them was the chairman of one of the biggest cyber security companies in the country was so taken he took my habit and went home and smiled at his kids all weekend until they said, can you stop that effing Victor Purton smile? <laughs> so, so the first trick is just to smile at yourself in the mirror and as you walk down the street, smile and say hello to everyone. Right? The dollar, it doesn't matter if they don't respond. You know, if they've got two pods in their ears and they're down on the screen, just say g'day and, and a big smile. Um, step number one, and, and you create your own community. Mm. Some people will stop and talk to you, but that's the first experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, can you do that? Then laughing more. <clears throat> um, just listen to comedy. Tell some jokes. Um, it, we can't, hard to do it on the radio, but when I do events, I promise people they leave laughing or singing or both. Mm-hmm. And so I do laughter yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And they breathe in for four, out for four, in for four, out for four in and laugh hysterically and no one's died during the practice yet but people just the adrenaline and and my face is completely flushed at the end of the 30 seconds of laughter um saying thank you more you know i go to a cafe in port melbourne and um, i'm treated like royalty And, and i'm treated like royalty because every time i leave i go to the chef the kitchen is open and i say that was a brilliant scrambled eggs or that was a brilliant piece of toast with avocado. Uh, and I go to the barista and I say, thank you for that coffee. And, and the waitresses have already been thanked. And, and it's so simple, that instant thank you, you know, to be thankful to, to the cash register person, you know, whether it's in a restaurant or, or in a supermarket. And to take that interest, you know, we talked um, offline before we got here, you know, what, what's your favourite song? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the songs we're playing today are the most important songs for me on optimism. But my favourite, favourite song is Answer Me a Question mm. from the 1973 film Lost Horizon with the music written by Burt Bacharach. And essentially the lyrics are, answer me a question, right or wrong, you can answer with a question, right or wrong. Even though your answer may be wrong, your question may be right. Answer with a question. And so just being curious. So I will... Stopped at a red light in the centre of the city, I will talk to a stranger and say, what's been the best thing in your day? And 10% of the time or 20% of the time, they'll end up telling you a longer story and you'll miss the traffic light. But just more storytelling. And then the, the big one, Bill George at Harvard, really set me on this one when I interviewed him on leadership. 
And I said, what makes you optimistic? And he said, being surrounded by positive people. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, there are times we are going to have to have coffee or dinner with someone who's miserable. You know, a, a pessimist. It could be our father, our mother, our grandparent, our closest friend. But when you're choosing the people to have a beer with or a walk with or a weekend trip away, choose the ones you know will lift you up, right? And, and Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, you know, in Australia he's often thought of as fine food and caviar, but he actually lived on a commune mainly eating root vegetables. He said the principles of choosing your dinner guests, your dinner is who are you going to eat with? Mm -hmm. Then where are you going to be? And then what are you going to eat? Mm -hmm. So just imagine that dinner you want to have at the pub or elsewhere. Make sure it's with the blokes that lift you, not the blokes who are going to be in there and say, well, bloody Andrews or, you know, bloody Morrison or... You know, God, they're all getting it wrong. And, oh, the ho you know, we, we've got one of the best health systems on world, but, oh, the health system's broken. Oh, we've got a nursing crisis. Oh, we've got a – everything's a crisis now. I saw the word the other day, polycrisis, P-O-L-Y, crisis. I mean, how does the prime minister even think if he's got to solve everything from, you know, violence in Alice Springs to which submarine to choose to defend us from the Chinese? Mm. When, when something goes wrong in your life, and, and how do you react to it? I generally, it's either... A serious, something seriously goes wrong. It's a really good question. I, I think I'm analytical. Mm. You know, is it an accident? You know, and generally, you know, it, most things that go wrong are accidental. Um is it deliberate by someone else? Is it my fault? Um, what can I learn from it? And, you know, generally, um, I mean, this sounds odd, but I, I think, God, you know, what happened to my grandparents? Mm. You know, my grandfather was attacked by someone, but they tortured him to death. Mm. You know, my grandmother fell foul of the government. She was sent to prison for 12 years. You know, my parents were refos. You know, Living in a country like this, most of the stuff that goes wrong in our lives is small beer compared to what the people of Ukraine are living through or the people of, of Syria are living through. So I tend to be comparative um, and I tend to diminish what goes wrong with me by saying, look, you know, just there are a lot of people living it harder than you, Vic. And I, one of the phrases I hate in Australian politics is, Australians are doing it hard. Mm. So some Australians are doing it hard, right? There's someone who's listening to us whose parents might have died today or yesterday, um, you know, who, who are, have lost their job or, you know, they're suffering with depression mm. or the like and they're listening into this broadcast. So, you know, if I can help them, if we're helping them, that's a wonderful thing to do. But for me generally... I'm pretty comparative, and I say the stuff that happens to me isn't that bad. So it's it's a choice you make as to do you go to the depths of despair and bitterness and that sort of thing, or do you uh, learn from it? And what you're saying is you look at the situation, you say, what can I learn from this? And you try and grow from that um, bad thing that's happened to you. Yeah, and, and, and when mum died, you know, we... You know, it's a sad thing. Your mother's been in your life. You know, mm -hmm. at that stage, you know, 62 years. 
um, and uplifting you. And, you know, she in her death, it wasn't, wasn't the best of deaths, but, you know, we made the, the funeral a celebration. Mm-hmm. You know, when we played the music she loved and we told the funny stories. And uh, some, some of your listeners here would, would remember a member of parliament called Geoffrey Connard. Um, who was chairman of Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital and the like. And when he turned 80, um, he asked me to do a bit of a roast speech for his 80th birthday. What I didn't know was he was auditioning me for his funeral. And so he had set it up, you know, that his funeral was going to be, oh, God, that time he got drunk or that time he did something odd. So humour, very much a part of it. But it's not easy for everyone. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, if, if you're finding it tough, I think we've talked about it earlier, you know, is there a positive friend, you know, who's going to lift you? And I, I was listening to a piece the other day um, on radio. It was about Franklin Roosevelt, you know, the American president. A friend of mine, James Strock, has got a, a worldwide podcast and he was talking to an author who'd written a new piece on on. Franklin Roosevelt, and um, apparently he was a very cold man, right, and had no friends, but he had this unique gift of lifting people up, and and the example was given of a man whose wife had died and the like, and Roosevelt would go spend time with them, and, you know, our study on grief and and optimism, you know, you don't go and say, if, if, if your mother's died, you don't go and say she's in a better place. Mm. Right, you listen to the friend who's in grief and has made the loss, and you might play into it that story you remember. You know, my friends, you know, my twenty first birthday, which my mum hosted at home. Do you know, my, we're all sixty three. They still remember mum's good humour as you know, as young men did in those days when they turned twenty one. The yard glass and all of the things you did. Um, and they remembered her good humour in the face of young men going wild. Uh, look, I think I think that's actually true. But uh, one of the things I think is important as well for anyone listening is it, we're talking about, you know, you're talking about grief as well and you're talking about maybe some situations, like you said, whether it be a positive friend or whether it even be someone, a therapist or someone else to sort of explore the belief systems that you've got underneath that are maybe causing you to stay in that situation is really important because perhaps even just being able to walk down the street and smiling may be difficult for someone to do that um, and to understand that perhaps some situations require a little bit more in-depth inner work for you. So that's just, I just felt that was important just to share to everyone who may feel like, but you know, my situation is a little bit more dire than that or I don't think I can just sort of walk down the street and, and smile so um, th- I just wanted to add that in is there anything else that you wanted to add in there too Peter? Oh just I, I think uh, just to thank you Victor I think there's been uh, some fantastic advice there I thought in particular your uh, suggestions about uh, doing things differently things that we can do individually each day like changing that greeting uh, smiling more uh, laughing with people more and being more grateful and, and having that gratitude, sense of gratitude. I think that's really good advice. So uh, it's been fantastic having you on. It really has because you've, you got me thinking about optimism in a very different light. And I one of the things that you didn't ask me what made me optimistic, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. <laughs> um, 
I, I am someone that I've, I've come to realize I'm not naturally optimistic. And it was a surprise to me to actually explore and reflect that. I just went, hmm, you, you're talking about your family and their stories. And I hear a lot of my family stories and they've had been refugees and, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli uh, war and all of that. And there's a pessimism that comes through that. And I, I've been raised in that pessimism that I know there's part in my DNA. So I have to fight that. So, yes, not naturally optimistic. But I do believe that my experience in life has given me the evidence to trust that I will get through whatever is going to happen. And that, to me, I want to thank you for that because I don't know I would have explored that had we not had this conversation that we were going to do this this radio show and, and understand a little bit of who I am and my sort of natural disposition. But I'll... I'll fight that. And, and if people could see him, he's got this beautiful grey beard. And, and the, the scientific evidence out of Harvard and elsewhere is we become more optimistic as we grow older. And there was a lovely woman, Edna, who died in Shepparton last year at the age of 107. And she was interviewed by a current affair. And they said, well, how have you lived so long? She said, I never worry about tomorrow because I know the sun's always going to rise tomorrow. Mm. And I never worry about yesterday because I can't change it. Mm. You know, the ultimate in optimism. So I think leaving this program, Peter, the final question is what makes you optimistic? <laughs> what makes me optimistic? Um, I'd say by, uh, by nature I tend to be more of an optimist than a pessimist. Um, I have a deep knowing that what I'm doing and what I'm contributing towards is um, part of something bigger, what I'd call a... Um, well, what's been termed a, a spiritual renaissance. So that there's a lot of good things that are happening in the world that are leading us into a, a better future. And I have this sense that in a very small way, what I'm doing is helping to achieve that. So that, that makes me very optimistic. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's the way I'd put it. And our homework to your listeners is, as um, Steve did, Reflect on what makes you optimistic, and it's not positive thinking, it's what keeps you going, but ask someone in your household today, be it your partner or a child or a mate, ask them what makes them optimistic. If they don't understand what it is, just say, it's a belief that everything's going to work out in the end. Yeah, and I think next week's men's group meeting in uh, Frankston, we're going to continue this theme, I think. I think um, so, yes, and maybe even employ some of these exercises because we had a great session yesterday. Yeah. So thank you, Victor, for the inspiration. And we're, unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have <laughs> we knew to... that was going to uh, happen. Yeah, uh, I think we could have gone for hours, Victor. Um, but look, just to say that... Uh, you can get information on uh, our radio shows uh, and the podcasts on the Radio Carum website, which is radiocarum.org. And uh, also you can look at our Men With Spirit uh, page on uh, Facebook, which is at Men With Spirit. You can email us at connect with uh, connect at menwithspirit.com.au. And we're going to include in our post on Facebook um, links to uh, Victor's uh, fantastic uh, optimism uh, playlist and uh, also that uh, link to the, um, uh, the video of that song as well. But uh, thank you very much, Victor. And um, is there anything else you'd like to say just finally before we play some music? And Well, my contact details are on the Centre for Optimism website. So as you said rightly, Steve... For those deeper conversations, um, you guys have got your contact details on your website. Mm -hmm. 
I've got mine. We're happy to have those deeper conversations because sometimes it's not self-evident how you can remain optimistic in the face of evil or the in the face of some tragedy mm. and i'm always happy for people to give me a buzz thank you very Brilliant. much nectar we'll let those um the uh, last song that you've chosen which we'll go out on is happy from this from uh, despicable me 2 with Farrell Williams. Do you want to explain why you've chosen Oh, I just love the words, but I love the video again. So after you've listened to it here, um, Google it, Farrell Williams Happy. And it's got people dancing in the street, um, (laughs) fat blokes like me and and pretty girls, and um, it's just absolutely joyful. Okay. That's fantastic. Good. Right. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, until next time, be true to yourself and see you later. Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Radio Caram. Caram.